So the bright kids, whether academically or athletically or artistically inclined, were led to believe that we had to measure success by how far we got away from our communities. And education was generally the way out. So, you know, I started planning my escape when I watched the two buildings at either end of my block burned down. You know, my brother was killed as a result of the, the gang violence in the community. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was at seven years old, I was like, I'm out of here. And I knew I was smart. And I was planning to go to Bronx High School of Science, which I did, I just went to Wesleyan University. And, and it was just like, I've arrived, but we were dealing with brain drain. And, and it's not something that we take into account that happens in American cities or communities in general. Schools do not exist in a silo. They are tied to communities. High teacher turnover rate paired with brain drain of students can have dire consequences for communities that may already be economically or socially disadvantaged. How can we prepare students for career opportunities and still encourage them to invest in their local ecosystem? What are the benefits of retaining educated students for a community? And how can we support student success and foster community engagement among teachers and families? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Majora Carter to find out. Majora Carter is a real estate developer and urban revitalization strategist. She applies corporate talent retention practices to reduce brain drain and help stabilize neighborhoods. Majora is the founder of Boogie Down Grind, a hip-hop theme, specialty coffee, and craft beer spot where local groups can collaborate on projects and community development. She also founded Startup Box, a social enterprise designed to increase opportunities for underserved community members to be part of the tech economy. Today, she joins us to discuss how schools can contribute to sustainable talent development. Majora, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Knowing a little bit about your work, I was so struck by the notion of sustainable community talent. Um, you grew up in the Bronx where you are still living and working. Talk a little bit about what led you on this journey toward ensuring that people who come from a community feel the commitment to stay and invest in a community. I was one of the kids growing up in the South Bronx in the 1970s and early 80s. And, you know, literally the neighborhood was burning around us. Years of financial disinvestment, you know, did lead to, you know, poverty in our community, uh, the, the type of things that made people believe like this is just a place for urban blight. So the bright kids, whether academically or athletically or artistically inclined, we're led to believe that we had to measure success by how far we got away from our communities. And education was generally the way out. So, you know, I started planning my escape when I watched the two buildings at either end of my block burn down. You know, my brother was killed as a result of the, the gang violence in the community. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was at seven years old. I was like, I'm out of here. And I knew I was smart. And I was planning to go to Bronx High School of Science, which I did. I just went to Wesleyan University. And, and it was just like, I've arrived. But we were dealing with brain drain. And, and it's not something that we take into account that happens in American cities or communities in general. Yeah. And it's like, that's what happens in the developing world. But really what happens is that the best and the brightest within our communities are led to believe that they shouldn't be a part of its future transformation. 
And that was something, you know, the once I got older and mostly started working, you know, in the environmental world and realized that because we happen to be a poor community of color and thus vulnerable politically, we got dumped on. But yeah. by association, we also were losing our talent the, and to other communities so that they could go and enrich them. And, and that made me wonder, why is this continuing to happen? And, and that's when I realized we can create the infrastructure that allows people in our own communities to see the value in them. The same way if you're a company and you hire, want to hire good talent, that's how you keep them. You give them reasons to want to stay. And I was like, we can do the same things with our communities and show that you don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. But it also creates the kind of cycle where we see value in our own community and thus by association ourselves. One of the challenges that I've seen um, in a byproduct of all this is that people oftentimes with good intentions on the outside, they come in and they implant their vision on mm. these low status communities. And their vision, as I said, may be altruistic, may be well-intentioned, but it doesn't take into account the cultural mores of, of the low status community. You know, so there's really only two kinds of real estate development in low status communities. One is the kind you receive gentrification and displacement, which I think people know about. It's like they build the kind of things that are not meant for the folks that are already there. But what's interesting is that those same people leave those neighborhoods when they can in order to experience, you know, the nice cafes and bars and restaurants and things of that nature. Um, and the other kind is something we call poverty level economic maintenance. And that's where, I mean, billion dollar industries, whether it's pharmaceuticals and healthcare. Um, you know, again, huge government contracts go to those, whether they're public or private, um, you know, hospitals or healthcare uh, systems. But again, the, the communities aren't getting any better as, we, as is evidenced by the fact that those lifestyle illnesses continue to rise. And then when you, for affordable, quote unquote, affordable housing development, um, especially for very low income folks and, and homeless shelters, Again, big dollars go into those developer fees, which are paid to the developer, um, not to make quality housing, but actually what we see is that so much of that poverty is concentrated. And when you concentrate that poverty, what you also concentrate are low educational attainment, higher rates of you know, poor health outcomes. You know, it's a lack of hope, more poverty, and certainly more unemployment associated with those communities. We don't keep the infrastructure in our communities so that people can see that it's not just, you know, poor and uneducated people in our communities, because yeah. that has never been the case ever. But suddenly that's the that's sort of like the way that I believe, whether it's the media, even and definitely the nonprofit industrial complex um, that's supported by our government looks at those places and that's how we're treated and that's how development happens. And again, it doesn't ultimately benefit the people that are in our own communities. There's such a confluence of uh, you know, perception and realities when it comes to this whole issue. And when you talk about infrastructure needs, uh, obviously real estate is a big part of it. And, you know, when you made your commitment to, you know, ease the brain drain, uh, make sure you maintain sustainable talent in your low status community, you became a real estate developer, and that was one of the first things you did. When we did our own market research, and this, the, we discovered that people weren't leaving, you know, the neighborhood because when they when they could afford to do so for things like oh, it's like high crime or anything, that was that never even factored in. What factored in is like 
do I have a cool place to hang out with my friends? And they would leave our neighborhoods to go to those places. And that included, you know, residents um, and teachers, you know, actually we're on talking about education. Why, mm -hmm. you know, so we've had, we were told by one of our, like actually more than a few of, of the folks that we surveyed that they were just really tired of their teachers and they love their teachers, but they would leave so quickly. And they, the teachers would move to areas or do, move to, to areas that had schools and that, that actually had things like restaurants and cafes and bars and or places to hang out with at with their friends afterward maybe they needed to you know talk about a principal or another yep. issue that they had but they needed those spaces and when we didn't have those spaces we re they realized that that's where their teachers were going and so their students were missing out on actually having veteran teachers you know stick around because the the quality of life for the for in, in the teaching community within the community was not great so by building these kind of third spaces, whether they're cafes, you know, or, or you know, uh, restaurants or things of that nature, literally makes the quality of life for educators to be better. You know, we've, our cafe, when we started a little cafe called the Boogie Down Grind, and it was not uncommon for a teacher, you could see a teacher with a parent or a, a kid who just needed like a place away from school to have a conversation. And it was just a wonderful kind of space where people felt like this is something that I that feeds me, that speaks to me, because I need to have these kind of places, a place that's neither work nor home, but creates the kind of a safe environment that makes me feel like my community is worth staying in. What about this issue of, of economic stability? Because a lot of what happens when you have you know, working class and low class wages is people can't afford to live. So what are some of the things that you see that you're doing that or needs to be done? Yo, definitely what more needs to be done, you know, is helping people understand, like just first triage is that there's plenty of folks within uh, low status communities that actually do own property. Be but because we've been led to believe that there is zero value in our communities, that we are so quick, um, you know, when somebody gives us a call, a predatory speculator and says, I'll buy your house for cash. Hmm. they'll be like, you like, who's this sucker on the other end of the phone who wants this, right. this crap in this right. crappy neighborhood. Right. Right. And, right. and as opposed to like understanding the value that's inherent within that real estate and what it could mean for wealth creation. So making sure that we're educating people on that, on understanding that was a really important thing. Talk a little bit about some of the transformation that you've seen. And you mentioned Boogie Down Grind, you know, hip hop specialty coffee and um, hangout spot. Uh, there uh, are, and there's the real estate development you've done. But the community is quite a bit different because of your work. And you, I know you should be proud of that. But talk about some of the transformation from a psychological point of view in terms of what you what people say to you when they feel empowered to believe in their communities again. It's been exciting to witness, literally witness in my own community, but also bear witness, you know, with other folks, you know, who actually read some of the stories in, in my book and are actually rethinking their own communities. We're seeing things like uh, the Boogie Down Grind go, you know, and, and, and it allows us all to connect with each other and to see, the, see how beautiful we are. And I want to say, and those, those kind of stories or I want to build a business here. I'm going to start a business that's it's literally going to have a, a, a Bronx address, which is not something that many of us weren't, weren't even considering doing. Mm -hmm. And 
but seeing that their example is also the thing that provides another person with that example that, oh, wait, great things are here. You know, we can stay in our own community and build stuff together that's going to support us. And, you know, and I think people, you know, understanding a bit more about things like Black, like Black Wall Streets is mm-hmm. that, you know, this is not, this isn't a crazy idea. You know, and I know that there's, and I think that there's like some psychic fear, and I'm yes. not saying it shouldn't be, yeah. uh, actually the same way that, you know, savagely and without consequence, you know, Black Wall Street's not just the one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but all over this country were just burned to the ground or disappeared in other ways. And so I get that that's something that we should recognize and understand that that is part of what's keeping us from going forward. It's just because it's real. I mean, people are still getting shot in the street. Um, but I think the courage that it takes for people to like actually see themselves in a way that most of the men, much in the country tells us that that's not how we should see ourselves, you know, but oh, folks are doing these incredible things, but really it's just showing the value and beauty of our own community. Most of the plans, as you said, really don't take into account the Mm -hmm. voices or the interests of the people who live there. And when it comes to schools, we're facing a huge teacher shortage. Teachers don't feel uh, valued. Mm -hmm. And in many of the communities where they do teach, they do not live. So there's Mm -hmm. not only the commuter issue, but it's the feeling like they, they have to go somewhere to, to, to uh, practice their craft Uh, from a brain drain and sustainable talent point of view. And, and also this idea of what livable communities look like, talk about the role of education Mm. and schools that are able to uh, inspire children, have talented and enriching teachers who live in the community, yeah. and we can help incentivize that mm-hmm. as part of, of, of the re, any redevelopment project. Talk right. about that and, and, yeah. and how we should approach it. I think you have to be incredibly deliberate. And there, in general, there isn't a whole lot of that. I mean, there are some really you yep. know, amazing examples around, you know, where we're um, some very visionary developers are built, trying to build, you know, uh, teacher villages. And it's something that we are really focused on in, in, as part of workforce housing, because you've got to create, you know, affordable housing for ranges of incomes and in particular teachers, so that there is that, like, um, feeling that there's some folks that this this neighborhood is a value to many folks, and especially, I think, for younger teachers, like building that kind of model. And so that, that is an absolute dream of mine, to build the kind of yeah. fairly large-scale, you know, development that has, you know, economically diverse options for both homeownership as well, you know, as rentals, keeping in mind that there are, you know, working professionals you know, who need that. And That's teachers right. are always one of them. But I do believe that there is a, a crop of new developers of which, you know, I'm one of them who's, who's absolutely focused on creating more opportunities. Now, is it harder for us to do that? Because I think the, the, the dominant idea is that, you know, when you're building the capital stack, you know, to promote more economic diversity, you know, you might make a little less money. You that's know, so right. from an investor point of view, that's like, well, why would you do that? But we're like, because our communities deserve to be great. <laughs> and we know that concentrated poverty literally minimizes that. 
from every aspect, from like every social aspect, an indication, education, health, um, incarceration, you name it. And so why would we do that to our communities? Yeah. And uh, I'd like to chat with you more about that. I have one more education related question. This is what I really want to know. Um, how do we adequately prepare our students to uh, embrace career opportunities and at the same time uh, prepare them to commit to invest in their local ecosystem mm. so they won't want to run away? Right. And that I love that question, um, you know, in, in part because it just reminds me, you know, of the fact that people will be attracted to things that they see and that they know and that seem normal. And it's just like, yeah. so if folks within a, in a low status community are seeing, I mean, one of the reasons why they leave our communities is because of things that are attractive, you know, whether it's, you know, other entrepreneurs or cool places to hang out, they're not here because we're not creating the infrastructure for them to see, to see others that are just like them and who have those aspirations. And so when we build it, when we give people reasons to stay, and they mm. do, then suddenly people can see that. I'm living, born, raised, still live in the neighborhood. And, and so there are people who really appreciate the work I've done. No, I'm associated with, with the cafe, with Bronxlandia, with the Hunts Point Riverside Park. Um, but then they'll say, so Majora, where do you live now? <laughs> and to them, I'm very successful. And they feel so like success, you're not here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Success doesn't live here. Yeah. And according to the way that the nonprofit industrial complex works, yeah, people that do that can do good things, they might come and like, you know, sprinkle, you know, fairy dust or whatever on a project, but they don't live here. Wow. And I'm like, no, this is this is my home. Like I live here. There's lots of us that live here. You live here. I mean, I was that kid who was like, I'm out. <laughs> so yeah. I get it. Yeah. I totally get it, but we are, we have so much that's in, inherent within our community that is powerful, that is based on beauty and, and talent, and that we have it here in abundance. Now yeah. we just have to learn to keep it here. Yeah, well said. And people cannot aspire to something they don't know. It's, it's hard mm -hmm. uh, and see. Majora Carter, you're doing tremendous work. Thank you so much for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.